What makes a happy new year? If you were going to focus on making that happen, where would you put your time and energy? What if we could really know what makes people happy? Wouldn't that be worth knowing as we enter into the new year? Fortunately, the Bible has a lot to say about living life. And this morning, I want us to focus in on the book of Ecclesiastes, which gives us wisdom on how to face every day and every new year. Now, I could spend the next few minutes talking about the book of Ecclesiastes and also trying to explain it to you, but I thought we'd switch it up a little bit this morning, and I want to show you a, a video from the Bible Project. If you are not familiar with the Bible Project, and you love the Bible and want to know more, you need to know about this resource. Thebibleproject.com. Hundreds, maybe almost hundreds of resources, videos, short ones about Bible books and the meanings of Bible books and the outlines. It's a wonderful opportunity for you to kind of have your own little seminary at home. And so rather than me talking about the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, let me uh, just show you this about five-minute clip about the, that book. We're exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher. She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life. But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says, You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words, and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic? Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down, and he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time, or as the critic says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth, it's been here long before us and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago, and all the people yet to come, they too will be forgotten by those who come after them. And so, on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blip. Stars are born, and then they die and form planets which orbit new stars, and those planets, they change over time and eventually burn up. And amidst this cosmic backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time. Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation, that we are all going to die. Humans face the same fate as the animals, death. All people, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not, they all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness, then we all join the dead. 
man, this book is depressing. And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature. So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause and effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded. But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance, or in his words, the race doesn't always go to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food always come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So his point is that you can't really control anything in life. It's just way too unpredictable. So if I want to master life... Then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now, throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times, he says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious. It takes one shape, and before you know it, it takes a new shape. And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly. Now, our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate hevel as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting and uncontrollable. So... What are we supposed to do with all of it? Well, surprisingly, the critic first of all acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says it's a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the Lord. Really? I mean, he just said that doesn't guarantee success. But he knows it's the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that's your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, or the sun on your face, or a good meal with people that you care about. The simple things in life. Yes, and both the good things and the bad, because both are rich gifts from God. And that's the surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places. And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. He doesn't want you to lose hope. He wants to make you humble into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the heaven and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now there's one more voice in the Bible's wisdom literature, and that's the book of Job. And he will bring us the final, much needed perspective on our journey into wisdom. Sort of makes you want to know what's in the book of Job, doesn't it? Thebibleproject.com, you can find out. So what lessons can we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes on how to live a happy Life. Now, I know there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness tends to be external. Joy tends to come from inside. But for our purposes, let's just talk about happiness. Because most of our world, like the critic, is looking for happiness. And if you read Ecclesiastes, you find out that uh, it's more about what you 
can't find happiness. There's no way to strive to find happiness. It's kind of the anti-example of what we want to do. But learning those things can help us know how God wants us to live. There are a few lessons here, and I'm going to quickly go through them. Uh, One lesson I find here is God is up to something. Life really isn't meaningless. Its meaning just isn't apparent to us. In 3.14, Ecclesiastes 3.14, the uh, critic says, He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from the beginning to end. We can't see the whole picture. God, who is above space and time, who has actually created time, can see everything from beginning to end and back again. And so he can see how things are going to work out and things will work out. We are created, not the creator. There is so much we don't know and so much we don't understand. And even in this book, he talks about, I search for knowledge, I search for wisdom, and I still come up empty because there's more I cannot know and I cannot understand. That's what faith and hope is all about. We have faith that God is up to something. Let's suppose that I draw this huge circle And in that circle represents everything that we could possibly know. Everything that God knows. How much of that circle do you really understand? A very tiny bit. So isn't it possible that there is so much beyond what you understand that even if you were to try to understand it, you wouldn't get it? And that's in fact what uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. God is up to something and even if he told you, you wouldn't get it. Number two, happiness is not found in pursuing these external things that our culture says is important. Money, power, fame, pleasure, work, all these things the teacher talks about trying or watching other people try and working so hard and yet coming up feeling empty. Especially, uh, let me give you one example from Ecclesiastes 2 about work. You know, watching people work and work and how hard they do it. He says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. Huh. I work really hard and what do I get? Somebody else really gets to use the proceeds after I die and it's all Meaningless. Remember, I can't grasp the meaning. It's like smoke. It's like vapor. I cannot understand. So pursuing these kinds of things really doesn't lead to a fulfilling life. Remember what Jesus said? What if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? The critic, the teacher says, everything just doesn't make sense. Nothing that I try to get to make myself happy really makes me happy. And I look around and I see other people doing the same thing. And in fact, when I read this book, I think it's written in the 21st century. It sounds just like all of us and many of the folks that we know trying all sorts of things to make themselves happy, but nothing quite measures up. Number three, life is unpredictable. He says in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, And I know whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. The only thing that we really have control of is ourselves. The rest of life 
And sometimes we're kind of unpredictable ourselves, but we should have control of ourselves. The rest of life is very unpredictable, isn't it? I mean, it's, he, taught, he called it random. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Once we seem to have it figured out, it, it takes a turn. He talks about uh, good people not living uh, happy lives and, and bad people having great lives. And where's the sense in that? All the things that he talks about, it just when you think you've got your life all in control and figured out, Something unpredictable happens. This happened to me this week. I was walking the dog, lunchtime, on Wednesday. And before I knew it, I left my feet, slept on the ice, and landed really hard. Now, I wasn't planning to do that. That was completely unpredictable and unexpected. Now, I, I should have known to be careful, and I thought I was being careful, but it happened anyway. What's the first thing that I did? What do you think? I looked around. <laughs> Did anybody see me fall? Because that's absolutely the most important thing. Secondly, I sort of felt any bones sticking out. No, I think I'm okay. So I gradually get up and I head on my way. I could not have predicted that. I didn't wake up expecting that to happen. It just happened. It wasn't because I was an evil person. I did something wrong and life karma is paying me back. No, life is random. And once... We get that idea that we really can't control things or we can't control people. We can't control situations. The only thing we can control is our attitude and our actions toward those things. And that's it. That's the message of this teacher. When you think you've got life figured out, watch out. Watch out. You are not in control. You know, Paul said something about this in, in, in Philippians. He said, I have learned to be content in whatever situation or circumstance I have found myself in. So, fourthly, since we can't control everything, life is unpredictable, the only thing left for us to do is what? Enjoy the present moment. Many times in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher will talk about work or pleasure or money and he'll end with a very similar chorus something like this this is found in, in chapter 3 so I concluded there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can and people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor here's the key for these are gifts from God what you have in this present moment is God's gift to you that's all you've got. Paul talked about this when he said, I forget the past. I strain towards the future, but I press on here in the present. It's a really good way to live your life. Don't let the past drag you down. Don't live there. Don't live in the good old days. But secondly, don't live so much in the future that you cannot see what's right in front of you. And thirdly, press on. Appreciate this moment. Because as the teacher says, that's the only way to find meaning in your life is to be here right now. The 17th century French philosopher and theologian, you never thought you'd hear that, did you, today? 
wrote something that I think, again, could be written today. It's a rather long quote, so we're going to read along. And as life is unpredictable, I think there's one typo in it. That's my fault. So see, it's unpredictable. I didn't even get that right. Must be my computer. But let's read that because I think that has some instruction for us. Let's read. I'll read it for you. We never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming and we're trying to hurry it up. Or we recall the past as if to say it's too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander around in times that do not belong to us. The future or the past, by the way. And do not think of the only one that does, the present. So vain that we dream of times that are not and blindly flee the only one that is. The fact is that the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And if we find it enjoyable, we are sorry to see it slip away. We try to give it the support of the future and think how we are going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we can never be sure of reaching. Let each of us examine his thoughts. He will find them wholly concerned with either the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it is only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone, our end. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we are always planning how to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so. Since we are always planning to be happy, it is inevitable that we will never be so. Enjoy the present moment. So what would living in the present moment look like if we were to do that? Well, I think one thing is just to be fully here, to be wherever you are, be there. Have you noticed how easy it is to be somewhere else when you're with friends and family or whatever it is you're doing? Uh, my wife Wanda and I, we took a kind of a long vacation this summer. We went to the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is a lovely place, isn't it? Here's, here's a picture. Isn't that lovely? There we are. Do you know what most people do at the Grand Canyon? They take pictures of the Grand Canyon. You, every place you go, this is my pet peeve, so I'll just get on the soapbox. You can't even see the Grand Canyon for people taking pictures of it. They're crowding around the spots. They, they have selfie sticks waving everywhere. You've got a duck. It's a mess. Do you think they really see the Grand Canyon? Or are they just trying to get a picture for Facebook or Instagram? Which, by the way, is the new way of being famous. If I get enough likes, I must be a pretty good person. But there's another part of the Grand Canyon. There's just that. I was able to get the Colorado River right down there. Do we ever stop and then really enjoy the moment? Do we really appreciate those gifts? Remember, the critic says, that's the gift that God gives you. The things that are in front of you, the people that are in front of you, those are God's gifts to enjoy right now. I think we need a little more FaceTime, a little less screen time. Maybe you need to mend a relationship. Maybe you need to get better friends. Or maybe you need to be a better friend. But we need to enjoy 
all of those little moments that seem ordinary, but in the long run are the stuff of our life. Lastly, focus on your spiritual health. When you get to the end of the book, the author then sums everything up by saying this. This is the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his command for this is everyone's duty. When we begin to live as God wants us to live, as we see it lived out through the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, we begin to find meaning in life. It gives us perspective on those random things that happen. It gives us encouragement to keep on, as Paul says, to press on. It gives us information on how we treat others. It changes everything. So work this year on your spiritual health and you will find happiness. You will find joy as you gain perspective on the life God wants you to live. In 1938, the playwright Thornton Wilder wrote the play Our Town. This is a play about ordinary people in an ordinary place living their ordinary lives. The stage manager character is kind of an omnipresent observer of things that go on. And throughout the play, he comments on these little ordinary things that are happening here and there. He says, this is the way we were in our growing up, in our marrying, in our doctoring, and in our living, and in our dying. And we see these scenes played out. At the end of the play, there's a very touching scene. Where he's standing, observing a typical day in the life of the young Emily, who is now a mother and who has just recently died. And they look back at a scene in her life, a real ordinary scene in their house. No one would pay any attention to that morning. But it's important it's important to her. It's important to us. Let's listen in. Mama, I wish you could just stop and look at me for just one moment. It's been 14 years, Mama. I'm dead. You're a grandmother, Mama. I married George Gibbs. Wally's dead too, Mama. His appendix burst on a camping trip to North Conway. Do you remember? We all felt so terrible about it. But now, just for this moment, we're all together. Just for this moment, we could be happy if you could just stop and see us. I can't. I can't go on. It goes so fast. Nobody's stopping to look at each other. I never knew all of this was happening, and I never even saw it. Take me back up the hill to my grave. But before we go, one last time, goodbye. Goodbye, world. Goodbye, Grover's Corners. Mama, Papa. Goodbye to clocks ticking and to Mama's sunflowers and to food, to coffee. Goodbye to fresh pressed dresses and hot baths and to sleeping and waking up 
Oh, earth, you're too wonderful for anyone to realize you. Does any human being ever really realize life worth a living it every single minute? No. Saints and poets, maybe they do some. Take me back. I'm ready to go. Most everybody's asleep in Grover's Corners. Well, there are a few lights on. Shorty Hawkins down at the depot has just watched the Albany train go by. At the livery, somebody's up late talking. Yes, it's, it's clearing up. There are the stars doing their old, old crisscross journeys through the sky. Yeah, scholars haven't decided, but they seem to think that there's no living beings up there, just chalk or fire. Only this one is straining straining so hard to make something of itself. The strain so bad that every 16 hours, everybody lies down and gets a rest. 11 o'clock in Grover's Corners, you get a good rest too. Could it be that the happiness that we're looking for is right in front of us in the person, in the everyday activities, in the ordinary things of our life? World, you're too wonderful. Does any human ever really appreciate his life or her life? The Jerusalem Talmud says this, every man must render an account before God of all the good things he beheld in life and did not enjoy. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and his gift to us is this moment. There's an old gospel song that says this. We have this moment to hold in our hands and to touch it as it flows through our fingers like sand. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never come. We have this moment today. You can find meaning today if you take time to enjoy the moments God has given you. That's my prayer for you as you begin this new year. That you can gain the perspective that God brings us. That every day, every moment is his gift. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any